Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest-growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me. This is a best of episode, specifically best of 2023. This is the most downloaded episode or series of the year. It's kind of become a tradition of the show to start off the new year with the most popular episode of the prior year. And this year we're going to be doing the Gilgo Beach slaying along with the Lisk update that came out when Rex Harriman was arrested in connection to those crimes. Before we get going, however, as always, I do have the normal show notes. If you would like to help support the show, you can go to your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. You can also subscribe. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast, make one-time donation. And if you really enjoy what it is that I do on this show, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash decast patreon for as little as two dollars a month you can become a patreon member and get access to exclusive content and early release ad free episodes all right now that all that is out of the way find yourself a nice comfy chair kick back relax let's go into the crypt the gilgo beach serial killer is a case i first heard about years ago when bodies started being found and I followed it for quite a bit although as with most cases from the early to mid 2000s I got out of following it as other more interesting cases came up and I'm going to attempt to do a comprehensive look at this case if I forget something or I happen to get something wrong, i.e. I give information and there is newer, better information that contradicts that, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. We're going to start with a brief description of where Gilgo Beach is. It is also known as the South Shore, and it pretty much runs the coast of Long Island on the Atlantic Ocean. And it's made up of various communities, including the Hamptons, Amityville, Bay Shore, Bellport, Lido Beach, Islip Terrace, Lindenhurst, Long Beach, Rockville Center. There's quite a bit of money in this area. And that's not to say that the entire area is, you know, a rich man's paradise, but there is a lot of money in this area. 
And the case really begins, as far as law enforcement were concerned, with a phone call that they received in the early morning hours of May 1st, 2010, from a 23-year-old escort from New Jersey, specifically Jersey City, by the name of Shannon Gilbert. Now, Shannon offered her services through Craigslist, which, for anyone who'll remember this period of time as far as the internet goes, places like Craigslist were really the Wild West when it came to what types of services or goods could be purchased through them. It wasn't until a few years later that these sites started cracking down on sex workers offering their services through Craigslist and other sites. So this is how Shannon was able to get her clientele. And some of this information that I'm going to be sharing with you comes from gilgocase.com. We're going to go over a timeline of May 1st when everything with Shannon went down. One thing I want to stress here is that this is the information as it's known to the public. There may be further information that has not as of yet been released by the police. Between 12 and 12.20 a.m., in the morning hours of May 1st, Shannon met with a client in Midtown Manhattan. There really isn't a lot of information concerning this, although I believe it was more likely than not that this was a regular client of hers and it was really just a quick hookup. At 12.20, Shannon contacts her driver, an individual by the name of Michael Park, and she speaks to him for an estimated three minutes and lets her know that she is done with this client, which gives us some kind of idea as to what the business transaction between Shannon and this individual was. At 12.23 a.m., Shannon calls Pack again, we don't have specifics on what the conversation was about, but it lasted for two minutes. At 12.25 a.m., Shannon again calls Pack. This call lasted for one minute. At 1 a.m., Shannon and Michael Pack leave Midtown Manhattan and head toward the Oak Beach Association, which is a gated community Filled with some fairly well-to-do individuals, Shannon had an appointment booked to attend a party being hosted by Joseph Brewer. And it seems as though Shannon was to be that evening's entertainment. At 2 a.m., Shannon and her driver arrive at Brewer's residence while Pack remained outside in the SUV. Again, this information is coming from gilgocase.com. If you want to check the accuracy or find out any other information that I may not be mentioning here, between 2 a.m. and 2.30, Shannon and Brewer left Brewer's home for approximately 15 minutes 
inside of Brewer's vehicle. Again, it's not stated what they were doing, but I have a feeling that there was some form of sexual intercourse taking place, or possibly they were discussing the things that Shannon might do for those of who are attending the party before they drive back. At 2.55 a.m., Shannon contacts a CVS pharmacy in West Islip, and a few minutes after that, at 2.57, she calls Pack, and this phone call lasts approximately three minutes. Up to this point, it does not seem as though anything is going awry, it seems to be a pretty standard job for Shannon. So this brings us to 3 o'clock, and over the next 15 minutes, there is at least four more phone calls, both from Shannon to Pack, as well as to from Pack to Shannon. Then the lines kind of go quiet until 4.09 a.m. where Shannon calls Pack again. I want to stress, at least to the best of my knowledge, what I've been able to discover. We don't know what Shannon and Pack discussed, although more likely than not, I suspect she was touching base with him as kind of a safety net, and he would be touching base back with her to make sure everything is going well inside of this home. Now, at 4.45 a.m., at least, according to Brewer, Shannon becomes agitated, although the reasons for her agitation are unknown, and it gets to a point where Brewer actually contacts Pack and asks him to remove Shannon from the home. And during this interaction, Pack goes into the home and Shannon states, you guys are trying to kill me. The two men continue to try and get Shannon to leave the house and she refuses. At 4.51 a.m., Shannon makes a phone call to the police, which lasts until 5.14. That's a 23-minute phone call. She calls 911. Some sources state that Shannon initially was connected to the local police department before being transferred to the New York State Police as opposed to the Suffolk County Police Department. Now, in 2020, this phone call was released by the police to the family, and eventually it makes its way to the public, and I am going to play part of this phone call at this point. Hey, please, Trooper Frank. Calling from? What is asking me? 
please. Are you in Suffolk County or Nassau County? Um, I'm in Long Island. Where on Long Island are you? coherent and at other times does not seem to be exactly with it. I suspect, although I don't know for certain, that she probably imbibed of some type of narcotics that evening. You can also hear Pack, as well as the homeowner, attempting to coax her to leave the house, especially towards the end of portion of that phone call and um, there is more to this phone call I'm not going to play the entire thing I just wanted to get you and give you an idea of it there are other phone calls that I am going to be playing throughout this particular portion of the case and you can hear how Shannon's agitation escalates after being unable to coax Shannon from the house Pack eventually goes back outside to the XUV to wait, and around 4.45 a.m., he sees Shannon run from the house. She runs down the street to neighbor's home, the neighbor being a man by the name of Gus Coletti. And Shannon begins to knock on his door. When Coletti opens the door, Shannon asks him for help, Coletti invites her inside. She keeps screaming, demanding he help her. And at this point, Coletti contacts law enforcement. of the call right there is actually when Shannon runs from the house at 4.55 a.m. to Coletti's home, and she kept her phone on her long enough to record her interaction with Gus Coletti. Shannon. 
At this point, Shannon took off into the night, leaving Gus Coletti confused, at which point he, in fact, calls the police. Shannon's phone call actually ends at this point, and she makes her way further down the road, roughly two-tenths of a mile to... At 43, the bayou, which prompts a, another 911 call. Here is Gus Coletti's phone call to the state police. Traffic police, location of emergency. Yes, this uh, out in the Beach in the association. There's a young girl about 14 years old running around here screaming, and there's some guy trying to follow her. What's the address there? I'm at 17, the fairway. So you can hear from this this homeowner, Gus Coletti, he's under the impression that Shannon is about 14 years old, and she, he sees Michael Pack following her. Now, while he's on the phone, Shannon makes her way about two-tenths of a mile down the road to 43 The Bayou, where this homeowner, Barbara Brennan, calls the police. This is at 530. 30 a.m. Suffolk Police, 875. What is the location of your emergency? Uh, 40, 43 the Bayou. Some woman is knocking at my door. What town are you in? Oak Beach Association. What's the nearest corner street, though? Uh, Ocean Parkway. She says she's in danger. Do you know her or no? No, I don't. I'm not letting her in. She's banging on your door now? Yes. Did she say what kind of danger? No. Oh. And we live in a gated community. What's your name, ma'am? Uh, Barbara Brennan. Is there a name for that community? Uh, Oak Beach Association. Oak Beach Association. And I have an elderly mother here. All right, I'll get somebody right over there, okay? Okay. At 5.40 a.m., the Suffolk County Police arrive at the Oak Beach Association. You're going to see different sources giving times for this. Some state 540, others stating that they arrived between 6 a.m. and 6.10 p.m., which is a pretty significant gap in time, 20 to 30 minute difference. They cannot find any evidence at this point of Shannon Gilbert nor can they find Michael Pack as Michael Pack gave up trying to track her down and by his own admission was driving home at this point. A couple of pieces of information from this roughly one hour-ish period. After calling 911, Pack did in fact approach Coletti's home and spoke with the homeowner briefly, and it stated that Pack saw Shannon hiding behind Coletti's boat, at which point she took off. The police did a tentative search of the area, although unfortunately 
they really didn't find anything, and they would eventually leave. And no one really spoke about Shannon again. We're going to look at who Shannon Gilbert was quickly. Shannon Maria Gilbert was born on October 24, 1986 in Ellenville, New York. She was the eldest of four sisters, and from what I could see, she had a very troubled upbringing with both physical and mental abuse having taken place while she was growing up. This eventually led Shannon to begin experimenting with drugs and alcohol, and also led to her spending some considerable amount of time inside of the foster care system. By the time Shannon had graduated from high school, at least according to the reports that I had read, her intake of both drugs and alcohol was beginning to escalate, and eventually she moves out of her parents' home and moves to Jersey City, where she begins working for an escort service called Lace Party Girls. It was an escort service in name only, really. It was a prostitution ring, and while at this prostitution ring, she ends up meeting an individual by the name of Alex Diaz, who works as one of the drivers slash body girl guards for the girls, and Alex and Shannon begin dating. Eventually, the police get wind of this prostitution ring, and they conduct a sting operation on it, which leads to Shannon getting arrested and brings with it all kinds of legal troubles. Now, according to Diaz, the two of them had had a fairly decent relationship with Shannon moving in with Diaz and his father in an apartment in Jersey City. Eventually, though, Shannon's intake of drugs and alcohol really begins to escalate, and he notices some very extreme mood swings in her, so much so that the two of them would fight quite a bit. At one point, they had a fight, and Diaz ended up punching Shannon in the face, which required hospitalization, along with surgery to install a piece of steel into her jaw, which I'm certain led to further drug usage. We will be get back to this in just a moment. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, Featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, gay porn, murder, and the manhunt to bring the killers to justice, tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, whose brutal near decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film, King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called 
an addictive page turner that you won't want to put down by the San Diego LGBT Weekly and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway, available on Amazon in paperback and ebook or at bookstores nationwide. We are back. I have a fresh cup of coffee. We left off. We were talking about Shannon Gilbert and her relationship with Alex Diaz, how her drug usage had begun to escalate. And this next port, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV, um, but I've had a lot of experience with addicts. A lot of places you'll look, you'll see information stating that at some point Shannon was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, and this is given as a reason for her erratic mood swings. I'm calling bullshit on that one for a number of reasons. First and foremost, no one has ever presented anything to back this claim up that she was bipolar, and by that mean, I mean an actual doctor's diagnosis. They just throw it out there. The reason I call bullshit is oftentimes when an addict is in the midst of using, as their usage progresses, their personality changes drastically and you get erratic mood swings. Perfect example of that would be Roy Radin, if you'll recall that case. As his addiction to cocaine worsened, he began having extremely erratic mood swings, going from nice and jovial to violent outbursts. And it seems that Shannon was having a very similar situation, and this is just my opinion. I believe that she, more likely than not, throughout this whole idea of having bipolar as an excuse for the mood swings that she was having due to her drug usage. It is known that she had at least one further arrest after the prostitution ring was busted by the police, this again for solicitation. By 2010, Shannon and Alex Diaz had moved into their own apartment in Jersey City, and Shannon had begun working as an independent, offering her services on places like Craigslist and Backpage, and she did this with the help of another man that she had met through the Lace Party Girls prostitution ring, that being 41-year-old Michael Pack. Now, Michael Pack was a fairly large Asian man from, I believe it was the Bronx, although I could be mistaken. I'm recalling this piece of information off the top of my head as it's not in my notes. Anyway, Pack is working with Shannon, and this is how they end up going out to Gilgo Beach. Now, I've already discussed what took place on the night that Shannon disappeared. When she did not come home after a day or two, Alex Diaz gets concerned and reaches out to Joseph Brewer. Joseph Brewer was an out-of-work 
financial expert who was recently either separated or divorced from his wife. Some sources state that numerous neighbors said that in the months leading up to the incident with Shannon, they had noticed an unusual amount of prostitutes coming in and out of his home and that they believe he had begun to take the bachelor lifestyle to its excess. What Diaz reaches out to Brewer, and Brewer basically tells him that Shannon had been there, he had not, in fact, hired her as a prostitute, and that the reason she flipped out, and this particular piece of information is coming from one source Brewer states that he accused Shannon of being a man, and this is what really led to her losing her mind. Eventually, Diaz decides to go out to Oak Beach, and he meets up with Brewer. The two of them go and try and retrace Shannon's steps, going so far as to head to the Suffolk County Police Department, where Diaz attempts to place a missing persons report on Shannon. Obviously, because Shannon is A, a full-grown adult, and B, working as a prostitute, the police kind of brush him off and tell him to go home, and that if Shannon isn't at their apartment by the time he gets home, that he should place a missing persons report with the Jersey City Police Department. While that bit of information is odd, it is not unfounded in cases concerning prostitutes as oftentimes, unfortunately, as we've discussed, the police look at women who work as prostitutes as being secondary citizens who aren't worth the time or the effort that will be required for them to look into where they have gone. On May 3rd, Shannon's mother receives a phone call at her home in New York from a doctor who claims that he runs a halfway house for young girls who are living on the streets. This doctor, Peter Hewitt, states that he had treated Shannon two days prior when she showed up at his home in a panic and had given her some type of drug, although he wouldn't say what that drug was. This doctor stated that the drug he gave her was to get Shannon to calm down. He also states that after Shannon calmed down, she had left his home and gotten into a black SUV driven by an Asian man, and that he had not seen her since. Why he decided to call Shannon's mother Marie, I am unaware. I don't believe he ever stated the reasons for that. But Shannon's mother finds the man off and decides to question him, asking how he got her phone number. This Dr. Hewitt states that he got the phone number from Shannon as in order to treat people, he requires that they give him an emergency contact number after which the two of them get off the phone. Naturally, Shannon's mother contacts Diaz, who states that, yes, Shannon is, is in fact, missing, and eventually 
Shannon's family puts in a missing persons report with the police department in Jersey City. Why they didn't put it in with Suffolk County, I don't know. That still does not make any sense to me because she went missing in Suffolk County, but that's besides the point. And a week later, on May 9th, Shannon's family heads out to Oak Beach and begins putting up flyers with pictures of Shannon on it, listing her as a missing person. According to Marie Gilbert, it was during this time that she encountered a man whose voice she instantly recognized as being the man who had called her home, that being Dr. Hewitt. When she presses the man on the fact that he made this phone call, Hewitt denies ever having made it. In fact, would later state that that was the first time he had ever encountered Mrs. Gilbert. Although we know for a fact that this is untrue, as later he would admit on national television that he had made that phone call as well as another one. Shannon's case kind of goes on the back burner, but eventually her family is able to convince the police to look into her disappearance, and it's during this period of time, roughly a month after Shannon went missing, that the Suffolk County Police are able to link the frantic 911 call that they received on May 3rd to this missing woman, and they begin to search the area. They sent out a detective from the Suffolk County Police Department by the name of Malia, who had been on the department for 31 years at this point, and in fact had a canine unit with him who was used to search for bodies. Now, Detective Malia would routinely return to the area where it was believed that Shannon had disappeared over the next six months, finding nothing each time. That is until the morning of December 10th when Officer Malia and his canine unit went out to Gilgo Beach, specifically the Ocean Parkway. According to Malia, he had recently read that the FBI stated that oftentimes when an uh, individual is killed, they will be left within feet of the road. So with this information fresh in his mind, Officer Malley and his dog Blue begin searching along Ocean Highway, and they do end up finding something. That afternoon, as they're searching along the road, the dog begins to react, giving the telltale signs that it has picked up the scent of a decomposing or dead body. Obviously, Officer Malia follows the dog, which makes its way off the road and into the marshy area, at which point they discover a burlap sack. And inside of this burlap sack, Officer Malia is disgusted to find the skeletalized remains of a human body. Obviously, 
Officer Malia contacts others at the Suffolk County Police Department. They get a crime scene investigation unit out there to not only retrieve the body, but lock down the area where it was found and to look around to see if they can find any evidence. Over the next few days, police continue to comb the area where this body inside of the burlap sack was found, and amazingly, they make another discovery. On December 13th, they find three more sets of skeletal remains close to near where this first body was found, all of them inside of burlap sacks, Most sources state that the bodies were each found within 500 feet of one another. So now the police don't just have one individual they're looking for, Shannon Gilbert. They have four sets of remains that they need to try and identify. Obviously, this makes the news and people are beyond intrigued. Now, the police continue looking around, they end up on the 15th seizing a white SUV from the home of Shannon Gilbert's client on the night of her disappearance. Also on that date, the 15th of December, the police announced that the FBI has offered to assist in working on this case. Although whether or not the police took them up at this point in time, I'm not exactly clear on. I know eventually the FBI does become involved. I suspect the police, more likely than not, did take the FBI up on their offer at this point. The following day, the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office announces that all four of the victims found are females, but that none of them are, in fact, the remains of Shannon Gilbert. The medical examiner's office also states during a press conference that they are using DNA, dental records, and facial reconstruction in an effort to try and identify the victim's remains. On January 19, 2011, the medical examiner's office announces that it has been able to identify one of the bodies as belonging to Megan Waterman. Megan Waterman was 22 years old and was from South Portland, Maine. She had gone missing on June 6th of 2010 after an ad advertising her services was placed on Craigslist. And according to multiple sources, and I want to make this clear about this case, Megan Waterman was not willfully working as a prostitute. In fact, all of the sources I have read state that her boyfriend at the time, who was a 20-year-old man, had in fact forced Waterman into working as a prostitute, and that he had in fact brought Megan down to New York on the weekend of June 6th with the express purpose of forcing her to work as a prostitute. They were staying at a motel in Hophog, New York. 
about 15 miles northeast of Gilgo Beach. An interesting bit of news from this period of time, when the four bodies were initially discovered, this group of young women who would become known as the Gilgo Four, the police already suspected that there was a serial killer at work in the area, and the news media had picked up on this, although unfortunately it really wasn't getting a lot of national or even local attention, and I say that because I did live in New Jersey during that period of time, and it was not on the news. It may have been on local news or more in New York City-centric markets, but even the area I lived in was considered a New York City market. So it wasn't getting in a whole lot of press coverage. You're going to see that's going to pick up, but I just found it really interesting that you have both the media and the police believing that there is a serial killer on the loose in this area, has been using this area as a dumping ground from some time, which we're going to get into in future episodes. It's not getting a lot of press coverage. It's not like it would be today. I mean, you look at Texas, for instance. They have an individual they believe is killing people down in a park. Um, That's gotten international attention, even though very few bodies and very few evidence has been released to link the cases together. On January 24th, 2011, the Suffolk County Police announces that they have identified the three other victims who had been discovered in December. The bodies belonging to Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Barthelme, and Amber Lynn Casello. Maureen Brainerd Barnes was a 25-year-old woman who lived in Norwich, Connecticut, She disappeared on July 9th of 2007, telling friends and family that she planned to spend the day in New York City. Maureen had worked as a paid sex worker in the past, although at some point she had gotten out of the business and only got back into it when she received an eviction notice from her house as she had not been paying the mortgage, at which point... Maureen took to posting her information on Craigslist in an effort to solicit clients. Maureen was a mother of two, and everything I have read has stated that she was a very good woman who had been forced into the current circumstances her life had found her in at the time of her disappearance. One interesting piece of information about Maureen's disappearance, though, comes from a friend of hers by the name of Sarah Carnes, who stated that shortly after Maureen went missing, she received a phone call from a man coming from an unfamiliar number. The man stated that he had seen Maureen at a whorehouse in Queens. This friend demanded to know the location of this quote-unquote whorehouse in Queens as well as who the man was. The man refused to identify himself, but did promise to call back with information as to where Maureen was, although unfortunately 
she never received another phone call. Maureen was described as petite, four foot eleven inches tall, and 105 pounds. She had been strangled. Melissa Barthelmy, aged 24, of Erie County, New York, had been living in the Bronx and working as an escort through Craigslist when she went missing on July 12, 2009. As with the other victims, Melissa was 4 foot 10 inches tall, 95 pounds. She too had been strangled to death. Now, interesting with Melissa's disappearance, on the night that she vanished, she had told friends that she was going out with a client that evening and in fact deposited $900 in her bank account, after which she attempted to reach her boyfriend on the cell phone. Starting roughly a week after Melissa went missing, her younger sister Amanda started receiving phone calls from a male caller, and they've been described as, quote, vulgar, mocking, and insulting. And eventually, the man would inform Amanda that her sister was dead and that he was, in fact, going to watch her rot. When the police looked into this, they found that all of the calls were coming from Melissa's cell phone and had been coming from Midtown Manhattan, Massapequa, and Madison Square Garden. Amberlynn Costello was 27 years old when she went missing. As with the other victims, she was 4 foot 11 inches tall and weighed roughly 100 pounds. She too had been strangled. Amber was from West Babylon, New York, which is roughly 10 or so miles from the area where her body was found. Many Different websites state that she had a pretty serious heroin addiction and had been working as a prostitute through websites such as Backpage and Craigslist in an effort to help fund her habit. Now, she went missing on September 2nd, 2010, so not too terribly long before her body was discovered. On the night that Amber went missing, it's been stated that An unknown number had attempted to call her numerous times, offering her $1,500 for her service. Her family believed that at the time of her disappearance, Amber had in fact been in a rehab center, which is the reason given for not initially listing her as being a missing person. Unfortunately, I don't believe she was in a rehab at this point in time. She may have been talking about going to it. It's known that prior to going to New York, Amber had been living in Clearwater, Florida with her second husband and working as a waitress. She had a history of drug abuse and unfortunately had been sexually assaulted by a neighbor when she was six years old. Lastly, before we dive into it full on, a couple people have reached out and mentioned various books written on this case. 
and asked if I've read any of them. I've scanned some of them. Um, really, the way I operate is more times than not, I prefer to do my own independent research on a case and present the information that I have found to you. That's not to say that I will not look at books and gather some information from there, but more often than not, that's really just a reference point as I use the bibliography in the backs of those books as a starting point to try and gather information. But thank you guys for recommending those books. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, would you get yourself a nice comfy chair, get something to drink, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we had Shannon Gilbert, who had gone missing in the early morning hours of May 1st, 2010, after attending what some people have described as a party others have said was simply a lone hookup from Craigslist. Move forward a few months, and then we had the discovery of multiple bodies as one of the officers was out with a cadaver dog trying to find Shannon's bodies. And all of these bodies ended up being identified, and they all were within, I believe, about 500 yards of one another and had been wrapped inside of burlap sacks. After these bodies were discovered, the police commissioner for Suffolk County, one Richard Dormer, was quoted in the news media as stating, quote, Four bodies found in the same location pretty much speaks for itself. It's more than a coincidence we could have a serial killer. Obviously, this garnered a lot of press attention. You're going to see some sites, if you look into this, saying that serial killers out on Long Island weren't something that has happened in the past. We know from having covered that that isn't true. We have cases like Richard Cottingham, the torso murderer, and Joel Rifkin as two examples of serial killers operating on Long Island. You're also going to come across a lot of different points of view stating that the police really didn't look into these crimes because there's so much corruption within the Long Island Police Departments, particularly Suffolk County. And that isn't without merit. I have come across numerous instances of corruption while looking into this case. However, that corruption is not linked to this case or cases, as you'll see. A lot of people state that the Long Island police departments haven't really given these cases a lot of effort or attention because the known victims are prostitutes. That's really not the case here, however, because there has been so much attention placed on these groups of cases. The Suffolk County Sheriff's Department would be 
insane not to put resources tr towards trying to solve these crimes because the eyes of so many people are on them. That's not to say that initially they may not have given these crimes as much attention as they needed, but they are giving these crimes attention. A couple people have also reached out to complain that when talking about Shannon Gilbert, I kind of dismissed the fact that she supposedly had bipolar disorder. That is my opinion after having dealt with numerous individuals with drug addiction issues. The term bipolar is thrown out there by a lot of people simply as an excuse to mitigate their responsibility for their behavior. I have seen nothing from anyone to firmly state that she, in fact, did suffer from bipolar. I have, however, seen much that indicates to me that her actions and reactions were a direct result of her drug usage. Some of these people have gone on to state that, you know, there was serious mental illness within her family growing up, be that as it may, that does not have a bearing on this case insofar as what others may or may not have been suffering from did not place Shannon Gilbert on Long Island on the night of May 1st, 2010. Her addiction and inability to get and remain clean and sober is what led her to make the choices that placed her in the position where the things that happened happened to her. And no, before others jump on me and say that I'm victim-blaming, that's not victim-blaming. That's looking at a situation from an objective outside perspective and seeing things as they actually are as opposed to this type of rose-colored glasses that all too often people look at this type of crime, wherein they view the victims as living their best life, and unfortunately these things happen to them. The reality is much grimmer. These women get into this life because of their addictions. Now, whatever triggered them to go and seek out their addictions is inconsequential. The fact of the matter is they ended up addicted, and because of this addiction, the addiction forced them into a life of prostitution, which then allowed them to be in this position where these things happened to them, and that is an unfortunate situation. But it is reality. Not going to pontificate on that uh, train of thought much th further. If you really want to hear my thoughts on it, go back and listen to the Green River Killer case. I think it's five or six parts long. I discussed my viewpoints on how society should deal with women who are in this situation. And believe it or not, it's not turned a blind eye to them. I actually think that society does need to help these women, and if they want to stay in that profession, then society needs to build in things to protect them better. 
Now, back into the case itself, police resumed searching the area in and around Gilgo Beach towards the end of February, beginning of March of 2011. At the end of that month, on the 29th, police discovered a skull, forearm, and hands. These remains were found about a mile east of where the four initial bodies were discovered. Unlike previous efforts by the police to comb this area, this time around they actually brought in fire trucks and used the extension ladders on the top of them so that the police could look down through this thick, dense foliage along Ocean Highway. What they were looking for were disturbances in the ground. After seeing a disturbance, they would send in the cadaver dogs to go and search the area under the hopes that the cadaver dogs would hit on a scent and they would therefore be able to discover something. I've read some accounts from people complaining about how the police went about this particular search. Why didn't they, you know, really cover the ground as it were? You have to understand, if you're not from the East Coast, it's not all city. Areas like this, you have extremely thick trees and underbrush, almost like mini jungles. So, to get through these areas on foot is extremely difficult and hazardous because you have things like sinkholes and swamps that you can't see until you're right on top of it, and that's what the police were dealing with here. Now, eventually, these remains would be identified as belonging to Jessica Taylor, Taylor was born on May 5, 1983 in Washington, D.C. and grew up in the Maryland and Virginia areas. Family and friends have stated that Jessica had dreams of becoming a singer and an actress and in fact moved to New York City in 2002 to pursue those dreams. However, as so often happens in these kinds of situations, Jessica ended up developing a pretty serious drug habit, and eventually she turned to prostitution as an effort to support both herself and her habit. Now, what happened next isn't exactly clear. I have some sources stating that Jessica was last seen on July 21st in Manhattan, while other sources state that her last known whereabouts were leaving a motel in Manhattan on July 26. Both of these are in 2003. Somewhere between the 21st and the 26th, tragedy befell Jessica. Her family attempted to get in contact with her and were unsuccessful, leading them to contact local authorities in an effort to try and track Jessica down. The family took to putting up flyers with pictures of Jessica in an effort to try and discover what had become of her, but unbeknownst to Jessica's family, her remains had already been found. On July 26th, someone who was walking a dog 
in Manorville, New York, discovered a torso lying on a piece of plastic with the hands, feet, and head missing. And as we've already discussed, these were found on March 29th of 2011 on Kilgo Beach, which is roughly 95 miles away. So there's a great deal of distance in between where the torso was discovered and where the hands, head, and feet were disposed of. Someone went to a great deal of effort to try and conceal this crime, obviously. On April 4th, 2011, police using this same manner of detection, wherein they're using the fire trucks with the ladders and the cadaver dogs, find three more sets of remains. Now, this is important as there's a pretty broad shift in the victimology here. One set of remains that was discovered belonged to a woman by the name of Valerie Mack, who was originally known as Jane Doe Number 6 and the Manorville Jane Doe. Valerie used numerous aliases, including Melissa Taylor. She was born on July 2nd, 1976 in Port Republic, New Jersey. Valerie had been working as an escort out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As with these other young women, Valerie had a drug problem, which led her to working as a prostitute. And she's known to have gone missing sometime during the spring-summer of 2000. That was when family members saw her when she came home to visit. It's known at the time of her disappearance that Valerie had at least one young child and was living with a boyfriend. On November 19th of 2000, her torso was discovered in Manorville, New York, which, as we've Disgust is quite a long way from where her head, hands, and feet would be discovered in 2011. Valerie's head, hands, and feet were found inside of a plastic bag along Ocean Parkway, although no personal items were discovered with the rest of her remains. Interesting here is that investigators initially believed that Valerie might, in fact, have been working as a prostitute in the New York area, but as we are know now, this was not the case. She was actually working out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her remains were identified through forensic genealogy in May of 2020. Another one of the victims discovered was a toddler who was lying next to one of the other victims. Now, eventually, it would be found that this toddler was related to another victim who has become known as Peaches due to a tattoo on the victim's body. The circumstances of Peach's discovery are as follows, and this is coming from the doughnetwork.org. On June 28, 1997, the torso of a 
female was found in a heavily wooded area of Hempstead Lake State Park in Lakeview, New York. It was found that the torso had a six-inch-long horizontal surgical scar on the lower abdomen, which could possibly have come from a cesarean section. There was also a tattoo on this body of a peach with a bite taking out of it and two drips falling from its core. This was located on her left breast and was approximately two inches by one inch. According to the Doe Network, her physical description was 16 to 30 years old and possibly of mixed race, although other distinguishing characteristics such as height, weight, things of that nature could not be discovered. It should be noted, though, that the police put out a picture of this tattoo in a tattoo magazine and eventually they received a phone call from an individual in Connecticut who stated that he remembered giving the tattoo to a young black woman who was approximately 19 years old and the woman had come in with her aunt and a cousin. The woman had told this tattoo artist that she was from either the Bronx or Long Island and had come out to Connecticut because she was having problems with her boyfriend at the time. Now, it's hard to figure out exactly, but it appears that the body was found inside of a Rubbermaid container, although another set of remains was later discovered that also belonged to this victim. These were discovered in Jones Beach, and I'm kind of unsure as to whether those remains that, you know, that head, hands, arms, feet were in this Rubbermaid container or if it was the torso itself that was found in the Rubbermaid container. Also inside of this container was a maroon towel and a dark colored floral patterned pillowcase. The other remains were found in 2011 at Jones Beach, and when these remains were found, there were two gold bracelets. When the body of the toddler was discovered, it was found that there was one 16-inch gold-colored chain and two gold-colored hoop earrings. So obviously, whoever this young woman was, the killer murdered her, dismembered her, placed the torso inside of this Rubbermaid container, got rid of it, got rid of the other remains. Unlike the other sets of remains that were found here, however, which had been transported you know, quite a considerable distance, the body of the toddler was only transported roughly seven miles or so from where the remains of the mother were found. But here is where the story takes kind of a turn. This fourth set of remains that were found were not from a woman, but were in fact discovered to have belonged to an Asian male. Now for me personally, the discovery of a man's body at this body dump site raises a couple of red flags, and I'll give you the reasons why that is. 
it is very rare for a serial killer to switch their victimology so drastically. By that, I mean going from females working as sex workers to now suddenly we have a male in there. If we lump Peaches in with the victims of the Go-Go Beach slangs, we don't know much about her other than the fact that she was a female and it's very possible that she had the child with her, assuming that she was working as a prostitute. We don't know that for certain. And that the killer decided to remove both of them to remove a witness. The male is a bit different, unless that this male was a driver for one of these women and decided to follow the killer, like let's say the killer got the girl into his car and drove away. The driver follows after them to see where they're going, and upon discovering this, the killer kills the woman who's in his car along with this male who has followed them. Or possibly the male witnessed the individual getting rid of the bodies or committing the murder. That's another way to explain why there might be a male in with this group. Outside of that, though, I don't see any relation to this Asian male being amongst the bodies of these females. And that's not to say that they aren't linked. That's just, um, again, an objective overview from the outside. It is very possible that all of these cases here are linked, but it's also very possible that they are not linked, or at least four of them are linked, and then you have this other one, this Asian male, who is not a part of the other series of crimes, and looking into them, you have to keep that in mind, that there is no definitive evidence that I'm going to call him Victim D., is connected to victims A, B, C, specifically because, at least from what I could find, the condition of his body was not in a similar manner as those of the women, meaning there were no body parts that were cut off and disposed of in another area that I'm aware of. And it's just as possible that he was killed for another reason and that his killer or killers decided to dispose of him along Ocean Highway because it was a convenient, out-of-the-way area to get rid of the remains. Should be noted that the male victim was found wearing women's clothing, which might be an indication that they were a transgender or cross-dresser. We will get back into the case in just a moment. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, 
whose brutal near-decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called an addictive page-turner that you won't want to put down by the San Diego LGBT Weekly and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway, available on Amazon in paperback and ebook or at bookstores nationwide. We are back. I have a fresh cup of coffee, and when we left, I was discussing the body of the Asian male who was found and how that body had been discovered wearing women's clothing. Now, the individuals who believe that this particular victim may in fact have been a victim of the Long Island serial killer point to the fact that Yes, the Asian male was found wearing women's clothing, and they posit the idea that the killer may have discovered this possibly when they were in the act of consummating their relationship and flown into a rage because this is not going to allow them to get the kind of satisfaction that they want from killing their victims, so they beat this man in the head and beat them to death. That is a possibility. Although, unfortunately, we just don't know enough about this particular victim or the circumstances of their disappearance to be able to definitively link this killing in with the others. I know, I'm aware, other people have definitively linked the male victim to the others, Myself, personally, until there's more evidence to sway me one way or the other, I just can't do that. Now, on April 11th of 2011, more sets of remains were discovered. These were in a plastic bag on Jones Beach State Park. As I discussed earlier... These remains were found to belong to Peaches, who was also the mother of the toddler, whose body was found down at Gilgo Beach. They also discovered another set of remains. This was in the form of a human skull. This was actually west of Tobe Beach. This victim was initially dubbed the Jane Doe number 7. However, eventually this set of remains would be linked to those of the Fire Island Jane Doe, whose legs were found in 1996 on Fire Island. So some background information on Fire Island Jane Doe. Her legs were discovered by seasonal residents Robert and Andrew Ragona, who were walking along Blue Point Beach on Fire Islands. I have read some differing reports on this. Some state that only her legs were found, while others state that other parts of the body were discovered. In any event, the remains were found inside of a back black plastic bag floating in the water. There isn't a whole lot of information on the Fire Island Jane Doe. 
There was some scarring on the legs as well as a suture. Beyond that, though, the police have not released a whole lot. According to law enforcement, there are no dental records on file for the victim. They did release a sketch which can be found online. Shortly after the discovery of these sets of remains, the police stated that they did not believe that all of these victims were the work of one serial killer. I tend to agree with the police in this regard, particularly because there are different MOs as far as how the remains are discovered. We have one set of remains which are recovered inside of burlap sacks or wrapped in burlap, and these remains are intact insofar as it does not appear, or at least the police have not given us any indication that body parts were missing, well, as with these other sets of remains, there are body parts missing, and in fact, they're scattered over a wide range in area from 94 miles to 7 miles away. Why is that important? Well, it's very, very rare to see a serial killer kind of reverse course in the escalation of their crimes. Oftentimes, you will have a killer who starts out, say, strangling women, and then over a period of time or number of victims, they escalate the way that they kill their victims. You know, it starts out, it might not, it's enough to strangle the victim, but over time it may become necessary for the killer to begin to dismember that victim in order to get that same sense of accomplishment and power that the initial victims brought them. And I can't think of anyone off the top of my head at the moment who went from dismembering victims to murdering them and discarding. That's not to say that there aren't cases where that's happened, but off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone who made a conscious decision to start doing that. Oftentimes, when you encounter that, it's because they were disturbed in the process of committing the crimes and were not able to take that extra step or steps to defile the victims. To have four victims pretty much in a row discovered in a similar manner with no known dismemberment when dismemberment is found to have taken place with earlier victims, to me that just doesn't jibe. And I believe we're dealing with more than one killer. In fact, I believe we're dealing with more than two killers, but I'm going to get into that in a later episode and give evidence as to why I feel the way I do. Now, I know there's some people out there that live and breathe this case and are going to disagree with me. That's fine if you want to come on to any of my social media and discuss the case with me in a civil manner. That's excellent. However, if you're going to come on my social media and scream and shout and demand that I 
listen to you and believe the way you do, well, you've got another thing coming because I'll boot you right off and block you because unlike many of these individuals, I've actually done investigations to a certain extent on a professional basis, not just internet sleuthing. So on May 17th, of 2011, Suffolk County Police announced that they are looking into other homicide cases for possible links to these bodies that have been discovered. They mentioned one case in particular, that of Tanya Rush, who was found on June 27, 2008 in Belmore. Tanya was 39 years old when her remains were discovered, and she had been living on Livonia Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, when her remains were discovered. They were inside of a suitcase that was found on the South Newbridge Road exit ramp to the westbound Southern State Parkway in Nassau County, New York. A few weeks after this, on May 29th, Peter Hackett, you'll remember he was the doctor who had called Shannon Gilbert's mother after her daughter's disappearance and then later stated he didn't make these calls. Well, he admits to CBS News that he did in fact make these phone calls, although from what I understand, a reason for these phone calls being made has never been given, which is one of the reasons why suspicion has fallen on Dr. Hackett. On November 29th of 2011, the police commissioner for Suffolk County, Richard Dormer, announces that the police now believe that All of these crimes are connected to a single killer. However, he further states that he does not believe that Shannon Gilbert is one of these victims. This draws a lot of attention in the media, but also draws a lot of ire online and still does to this day. On December 6th, 2011, Shannon Gilbert's pocketbook, ID, cell phone, jeans, and shoes were found during a search of at the Oak Beach Marsh, not far from where she was last seen. This was followed a few days later on December 13, 2011, when her body was discovered. The remains were skeletalized, and I've read that she was found lying face up, with police at the time stating that if these remains were in fact those of Shanna and Gilbert, she was more likely than not attempting to make her way to the causeway. According to police, the area where Shannon's body was discovered was marshland and was extremely thick with vegetation, and they believe that it would have been next to impossible for her to have made her way out. And according to an article by CNN, and I'm going to quote this part, Homicide detective spotted the bones at 9.14 a.m. Tuesday while riding atop an amphibious machine after having drained nearby areas last week in an effort to improve access and visibility. The remains were discovered about a quarter mile away from Gilbert's pocketbook, which was found last week alongside a cell phone, shoes, and a pair of jeans. 
Now, eventually, it would be found through an autopsy that the body was indeed that of Shannon Gilbert. The Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office did an autopsy on the remains and stated that they believed that Shannon died by death from misadventure. Now, Shannon's family then and to this day have disputed these findings and have stated that they don't believe the Suffolk County Police Department is taking their family members' death seriously, so much so that they actually went out and got another medical examiner to do an autopsy of this body. This medical examiner has stated that he believes that Gilbert was strangled to death. Normally how they determine this is by looking at the vertebrae of the body and they can tell from breaks within the body whether or not a strangulation death has occurred. However, I have not encountered anything anywhere stating that either of these autopsies found evidence indicating that there was breakage in the vertebrae of the neck. One thing that we need to point out, though, is neither autopsy found any form of drugs in Shannon's system. That could be for a number of reasons. It could be that there wasn't enough of her remains left to do a test where substances could be discovered. could also be that whatever was in her system had leached out into the surrounding areas as the body decomposed inside of this marsh. Conversely, it could also be that Shannon did in fact have bipolar disorder and that prior to fleeing the house she had a manic episode which would explain why no form of drugs were found in her system. It could also be that her body went into withdrawals for not having the drugs that she was used to taking, and in fact, this caused her to, and pardon the crudeness of this expression, wig out at which point she went off on both the John for the evening as well as her driver before running off into the night. Regardless, the police eventually stated that Shannon was not a victim of Lisk. As I mentioned a few moments ago, her family strongly disagrees. I disagree with their assertion. I believe that for whatever reason, Shannon went into a manic episode, be it from drug usage or mental health problems or going through withdrawals and that she took off into the night really not knowing where she was going. You can listen to the phone call that she made to 9-11. I don't care what anyone says. Her actions and words are not those of someone who is coherent and in control of their faculties. I believe that she ran off into this swampland, and as she ran, for whatever reason, she began throwing off her clothing and getting rid of her possessions. And you do see this type of stuff with someone who is experiencing a psychotic break. 
after throwing away her belongings, then Shannon ended up in this swamp area, at which point she either ran out of energy or became stuck, and this is why she was found where she was at. I've seen no evidence to conclusively point me to the conclusion that she was in fact murdered, but I've seen a lot of circumstantial evidence, which, if you're unaware, is how many of these cases are almost always built and solved, even to this day, indicating that this is in fact what happened to her. To wrap up the whole Shannon Gilbert part of this case... In July of 2016, Shannon's mother, Marie Gilbert, was stabbed to death by Shannon's sister, Sarah, in Sarah's apartment in Ellenville, New York. Now, the two women lived in separate apartments, and as the story goes, Sarah invited her mother over to her apartment and then stabbed her to death. Sarah was initially charged for criminal possession of a weapon and murder in the second degree. At the time of the crime, Sarah Gilbert's attorney stated that she was schizophrenic and had been in and out of mental hospitals over the preceding years and months and had recently turned violent even at one point killing a family dog in front of her eight-year-old son, drowning the dog. Initially, they didn't give all of the information that was being held back from the police. Sarah actually stabbed her mother with a 15-inch kitchen knife 227 times before beating her with a fire extinguisher and spraying her with foam from that extinguisher. After all of this, Sarah proceeded to strip her mother and remove all of the jewelry from her body. Sarah ended up being sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She appealed this, although thankfully she lost this appeal. Whether or not this young woman was schizophrenic is besides the point. The mental disease that she was suffering from does not match the nature of the crime that she ended up committing. However, it does give us some idea because many people believe that mental illness is in fact something that is inherited from other members of the family. There is a lot of evidence, clinical research, that shows that this is in fact the case. So going back to Shannon Gilbert just briefly for a moment, if her sister had schizophrenia, the likelihood that Shannon may have suffered from something similar is raised, although it is not definitive that too would give credence to the police's idea that she suffered a split from reality, which led her to the unfortunate circumstances of her death. When we left off last week, we had been discussing Shannon Gilbert, the discovery of her body, as well as the death of her mother, 
a few years later at the hands of her sister. And I'd like to take a quick moment and make a correction from last week when we were discussing Shannon Gilbert. I stated that, to the best of my knowledge, there was no evidence to suggest that she had been strangled and a very devoted listener pointed out something to me that I had overlooked, and that's that when her family had hired the forensic pathologist in 2014, this would be Dr. Michael Baden, to do another autopsy on Shannon, he found damage to her hyoid bone, which is a bone in the neck, and according to this individual, this Dr. Baden, quote, there is insufficient information to determine a definitive cause of death, but the autopsy findings are consistent with homicidal strangulation. That being said, that does not definitively mean that Shannon died by strangulation. I still believe that she was death by misadventure, whether she was suffering from a form of psychosis brought on by something such as schizophrenia or was in a drug-induced mania remains to be seen. It's doubtful we'll ever get definitive answers on that. But again, my opinion is she is not a victim of foul play. After the discovery of these bodies at Gilgo Beach, that includes the body of Shannon Gilbert, law enforcement as well as a lot of citizen detectives, I hate that term, you're either a detective or you're not, citizen detective is bullshit because private investigators are detectives and they are also citizens. At any rate, a lot of people started linking all of these cases together. But it wasn't just these cases. There were other cases that preceded these nine known fatalities that they eventually tried linking to these other cases. And I have a major problem with that for the simple reason that there's multiple M.O.s present in all of these crimes. And what I mean by that is simply, oftentimes you'll have a serial killer who will start killing in one fashion, and as time goes by, they escalate their crimes. It may start out as murder, and then dumping of the body, and then escalate to murder, and then sexual assault of the body, and then dumping of the body, and then escalate from murder to sexual assault of the body, and dismemberment of the body. We don't have that here. If we're to look at these cases as being all interconnected, we have a killer who starts at the end of the spectrum so to speak, in that he's dismembering the bodies, but then he moves from dismemberment of the bodies to simply killing and dumping. And a lot of people have pointed out that he's doing this in an effort to try and throw people off of his trail. 
While it is true that you will get killers who will vary their M.O. once they've established a certain parameter of how they're going to commit their crimes, this is an extreme change in their M.O. And unless there is some evidence that has not been released to the public, such as the fact, like, this is a hypothetical, that this individual is keeping the pinky fingers from the left hand of every victim, the idea that this individual is this master criminal trying to hide their crimes, that's a Hollywood fallacy. It's a fantasy. People watch way too much television shows like CSI and The Silence of the Lambs and they get this idea that serial killers are these extremely charismatic master criminals, super geniuses. That couldn't be farther from the truth. More often than not, serial killers are the dregs of society, oftentimes unable to maintain employment, loners, drifters. They suck at every aspect of their life except for when it comes to the commission of murder. They have this hyper sense built into them that lets them know, you know, this individual is vulnerable, now is a good time that I can strike, and this seems to help keep them from getting caught in the commission of a crime. That is almost always the extent of their super criminality. After the body is discovered of Shannon Gilbert, there really isn't a lot of movement on the case. In 2016, we have the body of Peaches being linked to that of Jane Doe number three, meaning that the two sets of remains are from the same person. In 2017, we get our first possible suspect in the case. That would be John Bitrolf. Bitrolf was born July 1st, 1966 in New York, and at the time of the good majority of these killings, he was living in Manorville, New York, which, if you'll recall, is where a few of the girls vanished from and or were discovered. Bitrolf was married and had two children, and he worked as a carpenter. In 2013, police made a partial DNA match on two bodies that had been found in the early 1990s. This partial DNA matched that of his brother, Timothy Bitrolf who submitted his DNA for testing, at which point it was found that, well, he was a partial match, he wasn't an entire match, so the police began looking into it it further. Now, what this DNA actually was, apparently they found wood chips at the scene of both crimes that had this partial DNA match, and the police began looking into Timothy Bittenrolf's 
family, they noticed that his brother, John, had multiple convictions for grand larceny as well as assault, so they ended up getting a DNA sample from him, at which point it was found that Bittenwolf was, in fact, responsible for these two murders. So what were these two crimes? This report comes from the citizen out of Auburn, New York, Wednesday, July 23rd, 2014. Suffolk County Police said the nude bodies of 31-year-old Rita Tangretti and 20-year-old Colleen McNamee were found within three months of each other in wooded areas of East Pachaug and Shirley in late 1993 and early 1994. Spoda said both women had been strangled and suffered severe blunt force injuries to their heads. Each was known to have worked as prostitutes, and the killer in both cases kept a unique piece of clothing, which the prosecutor declined to identify. Spoda said both women were posed in the same manner. He also said authorities were investigating whether Bitrolf may have been responsible for the death of a third woman, 28-year-old Sandra Castilla, whose body was found in a similar state to those of Trangetti and McNamee. Castilla was found in the North Sea community of Southampton in December 1993. Bitrolf is not charged in the Castilla case. So here we have a guy who has two prostitutes he savagely assaults them some reports i've read state that he sexually assaulted them as well although i cannot confirm that he ties them up he brings them out into the woods he kills them or he kills them elsewhere and then brings their bodies out into the woods and then he poses their bodies in a sexually explicit manner and he's also implicated in these other murders now why people don't believe bitrolf could be the long island serial killer i'm really not certain i suspect it's because he's too plain jane and there's not that air of excitement However, it would fit with what we know of the victims in that they worked as sex workers, they were all relatively small in stature, and found in wooded areas. Now, some people are going to point out, yes, but the MO, the modus operandi, is different. Yes, but if we follow the modus operandi to its fullest, there is a possibility that he killed in this one particular manner, the beating death, the strangulation, the tying up, the sexually explicit posing of the bodies in wooded areas, and then escalated from there to the dismemberment of the victims and the scattering of the bodies over large areas. And I say that because we really don't know, because of the conditions the bodies were in, whether or not the bodies which were found on Gilgo Beach had in fact originally been posed. There is a possibility of that. We simply don't know, again, because of the conditions that the bodies were in when they were discovered. And it's not too far a jump to state that, let's assume for the briefest of moments, Bitrolf is in fact guilty of all of these crimes, that 
he switched up his M.O. in terms of cutting the bodies up in an effort to hide his connection to the other crimes, but also because mentally that's where his escalation took him to because he does not see women as being human or at least prostitutes and in fact he has an extreme hatred for them. That would explain the severe escalation of the crimes over the years if he went from committing crimes one way to committing them and then escalating that further degradation of the victim's remains. Unfortunately, as I stated, though, we really don't know what condition the remains were in of these other women when they were found insofar as where they posed. We don't know if there was severe blunt force trauma because A, they haven't really released that information, but two, these bodies, when they were found, were skeletal remains. So it's not like they can look at the brain and see if there was trauma inflicted upon it, or at the skin to see if there was trauma inflicted upon it. So in my personal opinion, Bitrolf is a good suspect for at least having committed some of the Lisk murders. A couple of things that link Bitrolf possibly to this is that he was an avid hunter who was said to have enjoyed killing animals, but he was also said to possess power tools and saws. Some sites state that the bodies which were found to have been dismembered were dismembered with a precision that the average individual would not possess. I question that in that I have not seen anything stating that the bodies were cut with, you know, exceptional precision above and beyond the manner that a regular individual would be capable of. There's a lot of hunters out there just because this individual was a hunter, had access to saws, and knew how to dismember an animal does not mean he necessarily knew how to dismember a human body with quote-unquote exceptional precision. While that's worth noting that he had this ability, I do think that without full knowledge of the manner that these bodies were dismembered, I think it's a stretch to state that they were dismembered with this, you know, supposed precision. It is worth noting, though, that Bittenhoff lived a few miles from where the bodies of two of the victims were found, and it's also been stated that Rita Tangretti's grown daughter was friends with Melissa Barthelmy, who has been linked as a possible Gilgo Beach slaying victim, and Barthelmy mother has stated that prior to her daughter's death, she had a lot of calls from the Manorville area, which as I've already stated, is where Bittenwolf lived. So that's a possible connection. I don't believe that the fact that the daughter of 
a murdered sex worker was friends with another murdered sex worker really plays into this case. Again, that's a bit of a stretch with a Hollywood twist on it that this individual would be targeting the friends of one of his victims. More likely than not, the fact that these individuals knew one another is simply a coincidence. Now for other cases that have been unofficially linked to the LISC. These come from a variety of websites and I'm only including them in an effort to be as complete as possible. Shortly before Thanksgiving of 2002, Andre Jamal Isaac, who was a professional drag queen, disappeared from East New York after telling a friend that he was going to meet with a special friend. On December 17th of 2002, a plastic bag containing a partial human torso was found in Averney, New York. Also inside of this bag was a skirt, a black bodysuit, and a tank top. For those interested in looking into these particular cases further, you can go to gilgocase.com. That is where I am calling this information from. A short time later, on January 25th of 2003, a severed head was discovered on the shores of a frozen lake in Moriches. This head was found by ice skaters. There was a single bullet wound in the head. And over a year later, on April 10th of 2004, a landscaper discovered a plastic bag in Moriches, which had arms and legs inside of it. And eventually, all of these remains would be linked as belonging to Andre Isaac. Personally, I think it's extremely doubtful that this particular victim is linked to the Gilgo Beach slayings specifically because of the manner of death, or suspected manner of death, I should say, and no information that the police have released indicates that a gun was used in the commission of the crime. Another possible link is that of Jacqueline Ashley Smith, who was last seen August 7th of 1999. Jacqueline lived in Brooklyn and had left her home to go visit with friends. She was reported missing on August 12th, 1999. On June 20th of 2000, a female torso was found near Beach 88th Street in Rockaway Beach, Queens, New York. The body was inside of plastic bags which had been wrapped with tape. From what I can discover, her body was eventually identified using DNA. It is interesting to note that Jacqueline and Isaac's bodies were found one and a half miles apart. This could possibly be the work of the same killer 
in that both bodies were extremely dismembered. Unfortunately, we do not know where the rest of Jacqueline's remains are, so a manner of death it's not possible to list whether or not she was shot, but it is highly suspicious that you have two people in, you know, one and a half miles separating where the remains are found, who are both found dismembered inside of plastic bags. On March 3rd of 2007, a suitcase was found at Harbor Island Park in Mamaroneck, New York. Inside of this suitcase, the torso of a light-skinned African-American or Hispanic woman was found. It was noted that there was a stab wound to the torso. However, no legs were discovered at that time. Also of note is that a tattoo was discovered on the body of a pair of peaches. On March 21st, 2007, one of this victim's legs, who this victim, by the way, has become known as Cherries, washed up on the shore at Cold Spring Harbor. The other leg washed up at Oyster Bay in the village of Cove Neck on March 22nd. On June 23, 2008, Tanya Rush, an African-American woman, was last seen leaving her apartment building in the Van Dykes houses in Brooklyn. Tanya was picked up by surveillance cameras on Livonia Avenue walking towards the nearby subway station. Police have stated that Tanya was, in fact, a sex worker. After she went missing, Tanya's daughter attempted to file a missing persons report, although it's been stated that the police did not believe her until June 27, 2008, when a body was discovered inside of a black canvas suitcase. This was in Belmore, on the side of the Southern State Parkway's westbound side near the Newbridge Road ramp. Police stated, quote, it was a particularly brutal murder. There was a lot of rage in this. On January 21st, 2013, the skeletal remains of a woman were discovered inside of a garbage bag in Laddington. According to GilgoCase.com, the bag was, quote, buried in a small piece of brush in a sandy area along the shore at the end of Sheep Lane. The victim is thought to have been Asian and between the ages of 20 to 50 years old. Also found inside the bag was a black bra and a pair of jeans. We will get back to this case in just a moment. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice 
tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, whose brutal near decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called an addictive page-turner that you won't want to put down by the San Diego LGBT Weekly and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway, available on Amazon in paperback and ebook or at bookstores nationwide. We are back. Now, according to police, there was significant trauma evident on the bones of this particular victim. It was also noted by officers that a 24-carat gold pig pendant was found with this body. This next one is a bit of a stretch. On February 1st, 1982, Tina Elizabeth Foglia hitchhiked to a concert venue known as the Hammerlands in West Islip, New York, where a friend of hers was playing in a band. On February 3rd, Tina's body was discovered by Department of Transportation workers on the shoulder of the Southern State Parkway. It was noted that her body had been dismembered and placed inside of three different garbage bags and that a diamond ring, which Tina was known to wear, was missing. Now, according to police, the DNA of an unidentified male was found on these bags. And it's worth noting, just for the sake of completeness, that Tina's sister stated that she worked as a home health care aide and was recently in a, involved in a relationship with an unknown doctor. One website I found stated that there's a possibility that this particular doctor was, in fact, Dr. Peter Hackett which, if that were the case, would be highly suspicious given that roughly 29 years later, another woman who was in the his vicinity disappeared and was later found dead. Can't say for certain, however. Police have stated that Hackett is one of those individuals who simply likes to insinuate himself into cases. My personal opinion, though, is I highly suspicious that he insinuated himself into this particular case, especially when you look at the fact that he called Shannon's mother and then lied about it and then tried to play it off to local news media that he couldn't remember whether or not he'd actually made the phone calls. That whole particular situation is extremely odd, at least to me. How would he have known the young girl's name, at least from everything I have seen, when he's known to have made these phone calls Shannon Gilbert's name was not known among the general population of the Ocean Beach Estates. 
And the only way he could have gotten Shannon's name was if he had encountered her in some form or fashion, unless, of course, one of his neighbors who encountered her knew her name and passed it along to him. But again, we only know one person that actually knew her name. At least her first name, we don't know if that individual knew her last name. So all of that activity is extremely suspicious. Connecting the 1982 murder to the murders that took place in the 1990s and the 2000s, in order to fit the age range that the police have given us between mid-20s to mid-40s, the killer would have had to have been in their mid to late 20s in 1982, which would then put him in that later age range at the time of the other crimes. That is highly possible, but unfortunately we just don't have the evidence to definitively state that's the case. Obviously, if we put the killer in the lower age range for the later crimes it's not possible that they could have committed the crime that took place in 1982 and let's be honest here dismembering a victim and placing their body inside of trash bags is not the most unique way of getting rid of a victim's body if you really look into true crime, you see this kind of activity over and over again. So what I think we have here is two separate serial killers operating in the Gilgo Beach area, one of whom's M.O. was to dismember the bodies, and the other whose M.O. was to simply kill the victims and get rid of the bodies. The other crimes, particularly the ones that took place in Brooklyn, that's a little harder to tie them in to the Gilgo Beach slangs because we do have the difference in that those bodies were placed inside of suitcases. Some people say, well, that could be the work of the same killer in that one. That's a possibility, but it's also possible that someone saw the report on the body being discovered, that body, by the way, being that of Tina, inside of the suitcase, and when they decided to remove Andre Isaac, they recalled that story and said that's a pretty good idea. I do want to point out, though, that bodies being discovered inside of suitcases, particularly dismembered bodies, is not that uncommon an occurrence in and around New York City particularly during the time period that we're looking at. Bodies are constantly being found inside suitcases, inside of boxes, floating in rivers and trash bags, dismembered. But I'm not going to rule out the fact that Tina and Isaac's murders were linked in some way, shape, or form. I'm just pointing out the fact that a lot of crime happens in New York City, and a lot of people are found dismembered inside various means of conveyance. According to an article originally published by the New York Times and then put out in other newspapers, 
this is the profile of the individual that they are looking for. Quote, he is most likely a white male in his mid-twenties to mid-forties. He is married or has a girlfriend. He is well-educated and well-spoken. He is financially secure, has a job, and owns an expensive car or truck. He may have sought treatment at a hospital for poison ivy infection. As part of his job or interests, he has access to or a stockpile of burlap sacks. And he lives or used to live on or near Ocean Parkway on the south shore of Long Island, where the police have found as many as ten sets of human remains. Further in the article, they discuss that it's very probable that this individual had an intimate knowledge of the area where the bodies on Gilgo Beach were discovered, but they also state, quote, the summertime disappearances suggest several characteristics. There may be a seasonal nature to his connection to the area or to his fantasy and ritual. It may be the time his wife or kids or parents are away for the summer. There are many possibilities. On the burlap sacks, the article states, The burlap sacks provide yet another clue. He could be using the sacks either because they are part of his killing ritual or because they are the easiest cover he can find, but burlap is no longer a common material and it might be easier to trace than a plastic bag. To me, it takes away from his forensic sophistication and criminal sophistication and adds to the possibility that he is more interested in his, this ritual aspect. And again, that article originally appeared in the... New York Times on Friday, April 22nd, 2011, was written by Mandy Fernandez and Al Baker. So there we have the profile, or at least a partial profile, of the individual that the FBI and other experts in criminology believe is responsible for these crimes. This last bit is simply to, again, cover all bases. There are a lot of people who believe, unfortunately, that the Long Island serial killer case has, in fact, been covered up by law enforcement, specifically the Suffolk County Police Department. They base this on a number of reasons. Long Island police have an extremely long history of corruption. That's not speculation, that is factual. You can look it up if you are so inclined. I'm not going to get into specifics of it. These same individuals who believe that the Suffolk County Police Department are involved also posit that it's not one serial killer who is operating out there, but in fact it's a group of individuals who are killing these women either singularly or in tandem with one another and that they are all covering up for one another. There is no evidence of this at all. It is only speculation on the part of these individuals that we have this killer cult, if you will, out there killing these young women. This isn't a case 
like the Son of Sam, where someone was able to find definitive evidence that, well, the cult may not have been involved in the actual planning and perpetration of the murders, they did in fact exist, and there's enough evidence out there to suggest that they may have in fact been responsible for these crimes, so much so that members of law enforcement actively reopen the investigation to look into that possibility. We don't have that here with the Go-Go Beach slayings. Another aspect to this entire the police are covering things up story is that the police chief at the time of the main investigation into the Lisk killings, James Burke, blocked the FBI from being involved in this particular series of cases because Burke was himself being investigated by the FBI for having assaulted a man in 2012. According to a report by the New York Post, James Burke, quote, refused to keep the feds in the loop on the unsolved murders of eight women, a man and a toddler, on or near the beach, a source said. Before I get into my issue with those particular statements, I'm going to go over what Burke was under investigation for. A man had stolen a duffel bag from James Burke's police vehicle. Inside of this bag, there were sex toys, pornography, snuff, which is dip, and Viagra. When this man was taken into custody, Burke assaulted the man and then used the district attorney for Suffolk County at that period of time, Thomas Spoda, and Christopher McPartland, who was an anti-corruption prosecutor in Suffolk County, to help him cover up his crimes. So Burke was being investigated by the FBI for this, and Supposedly because of this, he decided to block the FBI for participating in this, the investigation of the Lisk murders. Here's my take on that. The FBI cannot come into a local jurisdiction and with a case like this where there is no proof that individuals were transported over state lines and for the purpose of sexual exploitation and or murder and take that case over. In fact, one of the parties has to reach out to the other for the FBI to get involved. That could be the local police realize that they're in over their head. They reach out to the FBI to get guidance or the FBI reaches out to that jurisdiction and states, hey, we think we might be able to give you some help with this, giving you guidance, should you want it, the, uh, you know, we're opening that up to you. The local jurisdiction does not have to accept that guidance from the FBI and, in fact, can tell them to F.O. So, unfortunately, for those who like this idea that 
Burke was actively attempting to cover up these crimes by keeping the FBI out of it, the reality is the FBI legally had no standing in the case if Suffolk County decided they did not want their help in looking into these cases. I'm sorry, but that's the way reality works. It's not like television shows where the FBI can swoop in and assume command of a case just because they don't believe the local police are capable of dealing with the crimes that they're looking into. There is a further twist to the James Burke story, however. In December of 2016, a lawyer who was representing Shannon Gilbert's family stated that an escort who he had been in contact with informed him that she believed Burke might be connected to the Lisk murders. This escort further went on to state that she attended a party in April of 2011 in Oak Beach that Burke was in attendance of. This escort stated that she saw Burke drag an Asian woman's by her hair to the ground. This woman further went on to state that at a, another party in August of 2011, Burke was again in attendance and she decided to engage in sexual activity with him, which the woman described as extremely rough. This woman further went on to state that at both of these parties she saw Burke engage in the use of cocaine. And the, here's the one thing I have a problem with in regards to this woman's story. She states that at the time she engaged in sex with Burke, she was not actively working as a sex worker, and that Burke was, in fact, the first customer of that nature she had ever had. I have two questions that I think are pretty pertinent about this woman who goes by the pseudonym Leanne. One, if she was not actively working at a as a prostitute, what was she doing at these parties? Meaning, how did she get there? Who invited her? Why did they invite her? And secondly, what made her at this second party decide that she should move into the line of being a sex worker if she was not one to begin with. Some reports I've read state that the woman was working as an escort at the time. The idea that an escort would go to a party like this and not engage in sex work is unfortunately statistically unlikely. The majority of women who work at escorts are in fact sex workers, which is why they charge the rates that they charge. And until we have answers to those questions, I have to state that this woman's statement is highly dubious. It's more likely than not that seeing what was going on with these cases, she decided to insert herself in them, probably looking for a payday of some type. The last person of interest we're going to look at is an individual by the name of James Bissett. Bissett owned a nursery as well as a company that was the region's largest supplier of burlap. That coupled with the fact 
that Bissett committed suicide two days after Shannon Gilbert's body was discovered, at least from what I could find, are the only two reasons that his name has been brought up in connection with the Long Island serial killer. So the fact that this guy owned a business that made and supplied burlap and that he committed suicide is why he's on the list of potential persons of interest. Again, without any further evidence about him and knowing more about his personal life, I can't put him on the list of potential suspects for the list because it's simply speculation based on the most flimsy of evidence. So far of all the people that have been named as persons of interest in the Long Island serial killer crimes, John Bitrolf is the only one who has been convicted of murder lived in the area where two of the victims who have been linked to the Lisk were picked up and or their remains discovered. And from what we know since his arrest and incarceration, 50 years to life in prison, there have been no further murders committed that are linked to these other crimes. John... Bitrolf is looking to me like our most likely suspect for having committed the Long Island serial killers. That's not to say that he committed all of them, but I'm feeling very strongly that he is responsible for a good number of them, at least based on the information that is available to us at this period of time also believe that some of these other crimes that are not, in my opinion, tied into the Long Island serial killer are more likely than not a crimes of circumstance and or crimes of passion, such as Tina Foglia. I don't think that she's a victim in this particular series of crimes, nor do I believe that the Brooklyn murders are tied into these other ones. Again, that's just my opinion. If you have thoughts on this case, you'd like to share them with me, you can email me at ian at corpsecreekpublishing.com. I'd love to hear your take on things and any other information that I didn't cover that you think is pertinent to this case. We are doing things a little bit differently this week. There's been a major update and breakthrough on the Long Island serial killer, also known as the Gilgo Beach Slayer or Lisk. I'm sure many of you saw that there was an arrest made on... Friday, July 14th in Massapequa, Long Island. So we're going to be covering that today, but we're also going to be covering the motion for denial of bail that was filed by the prosecution. And the reason we're going to be looking at this is because this gives us the best idea 
of what the case against the man who was arrested, architect Rex A. Howerman. So now this was somebody who wasn't on anyone's radar, and if you've heard the three-part series I did on the Long Island Slayer, you know that I stated that I didn't believe any of the individuals who people were claiming were responsible for these crimes were, in fact, responsible for this. This bears that out. For I dive into this denial of bail affidavit. I just want to touch on a couple of things really quickly. Rex Howerman has only been charged with three murders, with a possible fourth murder charge coming at some point in the future. These three murders are three of the four Gilgo Beach four murders. That of Melissa Barthelme on July 10th of 2009, Megan Waterman on June 6th of 2010, and Amber Costello on September 2nd of 2010. If you'll recall when I covered this case initially, I stated that it was very unlikely that the individual who was responsible for these murders was responsible for the other ones that have been tied into the Long Island serial killer just based on the nature of the attacks. The majority of those earlier cases, there was severe dismemberment of the bodies present at the crime scenes with torsos being left in one area, heads and legs being left in other areas. For this Rex Howerman to have been responsible for that, he would have had to have started out in the most extreme of extreme measures and then almost worked his way backwards to the killing of these three young women who were murdered, their bodies left intact, wrapped in burlap, and then placed along the highway with a gap in between their bodies of roughly 20 to 33 feet. You almost never see that in serial crimes. There's also a lot of people who are erroneously claiming that this Rex Howerman is responsible for Shannon Gilbert's death. I want to reiterate this. They have not tied Howerman to anything having to do with Shannon Gilbert. More than that, though, the coroner has ruled Shannon Gilbert's death accidental. All of the crime scene evidence that has been released to the public points to it being an accidental death. Yes, there is the possibility that there was injuries to her spinal column. However, that cannot be conclusively tied to an act of murder. So we need to move beyond this idea that just because this young woman was found dead in the woods and was obviously suffering some form of a psychotic break, that she was murdered. There's no evidence to support that, and, well, 
I feel for her family and understand that they want to believe that someone murdered their sister. There is no evidence that has been released by the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office that points to in that direction. If anything, it's the exact opposite. All of the evidence that has been presented is showing that she was an accidental death. It's very possible she fell and injured herself while running through the woods. More probable that that happened than this Richard Howerman going out and killing her. And I say that because the way she died, the way her body was found, does not match the already established and known M.O. of this suspected serial killer. And I do want to stress that while there is a pretty good case against him at this point, he has not been found guilty. He has not copped a plea. So until any of those things happen, he is simply a suspect. And I say that because I am one of those individuals who... Even if there is a mountain of evidence against somebody and it points to them, until they are found guilty in a court of law, they have to be presumed innocent. You know, the Fifth Amendment guarantees suspects that right, and I'm going to take a little bit of piss out of everybody's jubilation over this. The police department, Suffolk County, yesterday held a press conference, and the entire thing was, in my opinion, Opinion, a public congratulatory blowjob to one another and to every agency involved. And they stated over and over again that Rex Howerman was in fact guilty. Okay, that's not how our courts work. Yeah, you've got a mountain of evidence against him, that's fantastic, but that's not how things work in this country. And shame on them for coming out and making that public statement. They have just t tainted the jury pool in this case by coming out and publicly stating that. And they better be careful because any defense attorney who is worth his salt will bring that issue up in court and may be able to wrangle things such as a change of venue or who knows, get parts of the case dismissed because of that. These things do happen, and people need to be aware of that. That being said, let's dive into this denial of bail affidavit. It is 32 pages long. I had a very dedicated listener who we're going to dub AF, Send it to me yesterday after I had been in contact with numerous individuals working in and around the case trying to find out any information that I could about what was going on. Basically what I had been told was that this individual was being looked at for four of the murders and that they did not believe he was responsible for any of the other crimes that includes Shannon Gilbert. Although they weren't able to send me the affidavit until it was released by the court and this listener was kind enough to get their hands on it and send it to me. 
So Rex Anthony Harriman was born in 1969, and he owns his own architecture company in Manhattan. He has been charged with murder in the first degree in violation of New York State Penal Code Section 125.271A XI, a Class A1 violent felony for the death of Melissa Bartholomew on or about July 10th, 2009. He has also been charged with murder in the first degree of Megan Waterman on or about June 6, 2010, and murder in the first degree of Amber Costello on or about September 2nd, 2010. In addition to this, Harriman has been charged with murder in the second degree in the death of Bartholomew. Waterman and Costello. I have seen some people question why they're charging him with both murder in the first degree and murder in the second degree. Basically, it's to ensure that if the jury is unable to reach a guilty verdict on murder in the first, there's a fallback. There may be other intricacies involved in this, but by and large, that's the reason that he is being charged with two counts of murder per victim. And you do see this a lot in murder cases. Oftentimes, if someone is convicted of murder in the first, they do end up getting convicted of all charges, which lengthens their sentence. However, in a case such as this where there's multiple victims, if he is found guilty, there is zero chance he will be getting back out unless he is able to have that conviction overturned on appeal. After lifting off the charges, the document goes on to state, quote, as described below, based on the serious, heinous nature of these serial murders, the planning and forethought that went into these crimes, the strength of the people's case, the length of incarceration the defendant faces upon conviction, the extended period of time that this defendant was able to avoid apprehension, his recent searches for sadistic materials, child pornography, Images of the victims and their relatives, counter-surveillance conducted online as to the criminal investigation, his use of fictitious names, burner email and cell phone accounts, and his access to and history of possessing firearms, the only means to ensure defendant Rex A. Howerman returned to court is to remand him without bail. So there's a lot of information in that paragraph to unpack Basically, what they're saying is that Howerman planned each of his crimes meticulously and went to great lengths to avoid detection as to his involvement in the crimes. There is mention of fictitious email accounts and of cell phones, and as we go further through this, you're going to see that, from all appearances, it looks as though the state's air case is pretty damn airtight. However, there are a few points that we are going to get into as we go through this 
that are going to raise questions which the defense is more likely than not going to object to. And that is specifically how they were able to attain a lot of this information. Now, more likely than not, the judge will ignore those objections from the defense, but it has to be pointed out that objections will be made to this evidence. After listing the crimes for which he is being charged, the affidavit goes on to discuss the discovery of the bodies. It lists off how and where these bodies were found, stating that they were found 22 to 33 feet from the edge of the parkway, with the bodies in close proximity to one another. We're going to get back into looking at this affidavit in just a moment. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water and a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com. Dot com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Again, that's blendjet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D at checkout to get 12% off and free two-day shipping. And we are back. I'm going to quote now from this affidavit. On December 11, 2010, police officer John Milia was conducting a training exercise with his canine partner, Blue, along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach, Suffolk County, New York. The, during the course of the training exercise, Blue located a set of human remains. The remains were later identified to be those of Melissa Bellamy. Two days later, on December 13, 2010, the SCPD continued to search in proximity to where the remains of Melissa Bellamy were recovered. On that date, members of the SCPD found three additional sets of human remains within one quarter mile of the first discovery. These three additional sets of remains were identified as those of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. 
The cause of death of all four women was determined to be homicidal violence. Now, there is an addendum at the bottom of page three in connection to Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Quote, Although the defendant is not yet charged with any crime as to the disappearance and murder of Miss Brainerd Barnes as set forth below, defendant Rex A. Howerman is the prime suspect in her death in the investigation, which is continuing and is expected to be resolved soon. Moreover, there is substantial evidence of defendant Howerman's involvement in the disappearance and death of Miss Brainerd Barnes, which evidence closely fits the modus operandi of the defendant in the relation to the deaths of the other three women and which supports the current charges. As such, this bail application contains descriptions of that evidence which demonstrates the strength of the people's case as currently charged. They further go on to state that all four of the victims were found bound in a similar manner with similar items and wrapped inside a similar burlap type material before moving on to the investigation. They talk about how in January of 2022, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office created a new task force to relook at these cases and attempt to find out who had done them. This task force was comprised of members of the Suffolk County Police Department, New York State Police, Suffolk County Sheriff's Department, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Quote, a comprehensive review of every item of evidence and information in this investigation was undertaken by the team. On March 14th, 2022, approximately two months into the renewed joint investigation, the comprehensive review led to the discovery of a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche that was registered to defendant Rex A. Howerman at the time of these murders. As described below, this was significant because a witness to the disappearance of Amber Castillo identified a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche as the vehicle believed to have been driven by her killer. So this is how the police came upon Rex Howerman. Basically, what they're stating here is that in all of the evidentiary notes, there was a listing of a first-generation Chevy Avalanche, and more likely than not, the police began searching through motor vehicle records and checking out every one of the first-generation Chevy Avalanches that were registered in and around the area where the victims' bodies were discovered. There's more likely than not more evidence that they haven't released yet as to the color of this vehicle, which would further help them narrow down the number of vehicles that they have to look into which would, again, help them narrow down more. What we don't know, however, is whether or not Howerman had, in fact, been on the police's radar prior to this re-examination of the case by the task force. It's very possible that he was, and that upon realizing that this guy has a car that is similar to the one that was said to have been at the home of one of the victims. They decided to look into him further. After 
zeroing in on Howerman, the police go on to state that 300 subpoenas and search warrants were used to gather and obtain intelligence concerning Rex Howerman. Quote, as discussed more fully below, among the items uncovered were cell phone billing records for defendant Howerman corresponding to cell site locations for, one, the burner cell phones used to arrange meeting with three of the four victims, two, the taunting calls made to a relative of Miss Bethelmy, three, a call made by a detective to Miss Bethelmy's cell phone while looking into her disappearance, and four, Calls checking voicemail and Miss Brainer Barnes' cell phone after her disappearance. In addition, Howerman lived in Massapequa Park, where the victims were believed to have disappeared from, and he worked in Midtown Manhattan in the vicinity where the taunting calls were made to the sister of Miss Bethelmy. As set forth more fully below, defendant Rex A. Howerman is believed to be the person who used the burner cell phones to communicate with each of the four victims prior to their disappearance and who used Miss Brainer Barnes' cell phone and Miss Bethelmy's cell phone after their deaths. Both defendant Howerman and these burner cell phones had significant connection to both Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park, New York. So there's a lot to break down here. They're talking about they were able to dive into Howerman's personal life and through this dive into his personal life were able to obtain records that linked him to cell phones which were used to contact the women who would become victims but also that they were able to link the cell phones of two of those victims as to having been in close proximity to where Howerman's office was located in Midtown Manhattan, as well as to the general vicinity of where he lived in Massapequa Park. This is what I was talking about earlier when I said that his defense team is more likely than not going to attempt to have a lot of this evidence thrown out because they're probably going to claim that the police put unlawful surveillance on their client as well as unlawfully obtained personal information concerning him, which means that the prosecution is going to have to have all their ducks in a row. They're going to have to submit these subpoenas and these warrants that they put in to gather this information and they're going to have to explain to the judge why they asked for this information but more so why they believe this information would be pertinent to their case as well as why they believed that the information that they were seeking would be found within Mr. Howerman's personal and private affairs. They're going to show why they had reasonable suspicion to believe that these things would be found and that the information they were looking for would be contained in Howerman's records through his credit card companies, cell phone companies, and various internet companies that he used in order to facilitate the commission of these crimes. The defense is going to argue that 
unless they had already done some looking into him prior to putting in for these subpoenas and these warrants, there was no reasonable way that the police could suspect this information existed, which is a pretty good argument. Basically, what they're saying is the police must have done some illegal searches into Mr. Howerman to get to the point where they believed that the, a suspicion existed, at which point they went to a judge to get these subpoenas and these search warrants. The prosecution is going to have to prove to the judge that they did nothing illegal and that every single step they took in order to gather this information was in fact by the books. This could be a slippery slope for the police in regards to that. Again, we don't know every single thing that they have, nor do we know everything that led up to them requesting these reports. Next in the affidavit, they go over the disappearance of these four women, starting with Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She was last seen July 9th, 2007 in New York City. On July 6th, Brainerd Barnes' cell phone was contacted by a burner cell phone. They note that between the 6th and the 9th, there were 16 interactions between both of these phones before stating that the last known ping for Brainerd Barnes' cell phone when she was known to have been alive was on July 9th at approximately 11.56 p.m. in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. Afterwards, there's no known cell phone activity on till July 12th of 2007, at which point two outbound phone calls were made to Brainerd Barnes' voicemail, with both of these calls originating near the Long Island Expressway in Islandia. On July 3rd, 2009, Melissa Bellamy was contacted by a cell phone and was again contacted by this same cell phone on July 6th, July 9th, and July 10th. Now this cell phone that was used to contact Barthelme traveled from Massapequa Park to Midtown Manhattan. They were then able to track Barthelme's cell phone as it moved from Midtown Manhattan to Massapequa. This was on July 11th, 2009 at approximately 1.43 a.m. We will get back to Miss Barthelme's cell phone data in just a moment. I'm on the road a lot, and it's really hard to stay properly hydrated on the road. There's so many choices between water and sports drinks, many of them filled with sugars and other chemicals that leave you feeling run down afterwards. But what if I told you there is a better solution? Liquid 4 is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. In just one stick you get 5 essential vitamins and 2 times faster hydration than water alone. 
Use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, and on a long flight. One of the things I like best about the Liquid 4 Hydration Multiplier is their delicious flavor options, such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, Concord grape, lemon lime, pina colada, or my personal favorite, watermelon. But Liquid 4 doesn't just taste good, it's good for you. It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. And it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sport drinks. But best of all, Liquid 4 is non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy, which means that anybody can enjoy it, regardless of their dietary restrictions. And now, just for listeners of my show, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code DCASTPOD. So go to Liquid4, that's IV.com, and use promo code capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D, at checkout to get 20% off your order. Liquid4 Hydration. It's time to take your hydration needs to the next level. We are back. Now on July 11th, Bartholomew's cell phone was used to make an outbound call where it checked her voicemail. This location was in Freeport, New York. On that same day as well as the next day, the 12th, the phone made two more calls to check on the voicemail, this time with a location originating in Babylon. On July 17th, July 23rd, August 5th, August 19th, and August 26th, records show that the f- cell phone of Miss Bethelmy was used to make taunting phone calls to family members, quote, some of which resulted in a conversation between the caller, who was a male, and a relative of Miss Bethelmy, in which the male caller admitted killing and sexually assaulting Miss Bethelmy. And they do indicate in the affidavit where these cell phone calls originated from. Next, they move on to the disappearance of Megan Waterman. Waterman was last seen alive at the Holiday Inn in Hathog, New York on June 6, 2010 at approximately 1.30 a.m. On June 5th, Miss Waterman's cell phone was contacted by a burner cell phone, which had been activated that day and Miss Waterman made further contact with this cell phone on June 6th at approximately 1.31 a.m., which, according to the affidavit, is the time that Megan Waterman was captured on video surveillance exiting the Holiday Inn. After this, the burner cell phone used to contact Megan Waterman had no further cell phone activity, although Waterman's phone did travel to Massapequa Park with the last cell site location being in Massapequa Park at approximately 3.11 a.m. in the vicinity of the residence of defendant Howerman. The disappearance and murder of Amber Costillo. Amber Costillo was last seen alive on September 2nd, 2010, leaving her residence at 
1112 American Avenue in West Babylon during the late evening hours. This next piece is pretty telling. On September 1st, the day prior to Amber's disappearance, she was contacted by a burner cell phone, and this burner cell phone made contact with her at approximately 11.33 p.m. This cell phone was linked to towers in West Amityville and Massapequa Park before this phone moved to West Ab Babylon, pretty much right near where Amber Castillo lived this phone is known to have contacted Costello's phone at approximately 12.05 a.m. on September 2nd. Now, according to witnesses, at the time that these communications were taking place between this burner cell phone and Miss Costello's cell phone, a prostitution client arrived at Amber's home. After this client arrived, Quote, a ruse was executed on the client whereby a person pretended to be the outraged boyfriend of Amber Costello and the client left from the re residence with Amber Costello retaining the money the client had brought to pay for her services. Based upon interviews, that client was described as a large white male, approximately 6'4 to 6'6 in height, in his mid-40s with dark bushy hair and big oval-style 1970s type eyeglasses. A witness described him to police as appearing like an ogre. Furthermore, a witness noticed a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche parked in the driveway of the residence. According to the witness, following the ruse, this client said he was just her friend and tell her I'll give her a call and walked out the front door. It's important to note here that Rex A. Howerman is a white male, 6'4", weighing 240 pounds with dark bushy hair who wears large eyeglasses and at the time of Amber's disappearance he was 46 years old. After this encounter at approximately 1.18 a.m. on September 2nd, Amber Costello's cell phone received a text message from this burner phone that said, quote, that was night so do I sick credit for the next time basically is asking if he's going to get credit for the next time because she just ripped him off at the time this text was sent the burner phone was located in Massapequa Park further Costello was contacted yet again by this same phone in an attempt to try and set up a rendezvous between the two of them with further communications coming in over the rest of the day. At approximately 11.17 p.m. on the night of September 2nd, 2010, this burner phone traveled to West ba Babylon in the proximity of Amber Costello's home. Costello leaves the home, leaving her cell phone behind. A witness later informed police that they saw a dark-colored truck leaving the area from the direction of Amber Costello's home. After going over the disappearances of these four women, the affidavit then goes on to state that 
Hauserman's wife was out of town at the time all of these crimes were committed. Specifically, on July 8, 2009, she traveled to Iceland, returning on July 18th. This was the period of time during which Melissa Bethelmy disappeared and was murdered. On June 4, 2010, Hauserman's wife traveled from New York to Maryland, returning on the 8th of June. This during the period of Megan Waterman's disappearance. On August 28th of 2010, Mrs. Hauserman traveled to New Jersey, returning on September 5th. This was the period of time during which Amber Costello disappeared. They then go on to describe billing records for Hauserman's cell phone. He listed his address in Midtown Manhattan, that is the business address, as the address for the cell phone that was in his name. It's important to note that according to this affidavit, Hauserman was able to be placed within the same general vicinity as the burner cell phones that had been used to contact all of these women. They did this through tracing his own cell phone, but also from tracing American Express credit card usage, which placed him within vicinity of these cell phones, but also within the vicinity of the cell phones that had been taken from the young women who had had their lives taken. And there's a lot of technical data from this portion. I'm not going to get into it, but basically it's just them showing that the defendant was in one area, the cell phones were active in this area, and or credit cards were used in this area at or around the same period of time that these phones were used, be it in Midtown Manhattan or elsewhere in Massapequa. Now here is some of the really interesting and damaging evidence. The police were able to find that Howerman used his American Express to buy multiple cell phones, what they call burner cell phones. These are those pay-as-you-go cell phones. And that in conjunction with these cell phones, he created fake online personas under various names. Not only did he create these fake online personas, he also created fake email addresses to go along with them. So I'm going to run through these very quickly. Records obtained from American Express show that Numerous payments were made to Google Play for Tinder, which anyone who's not aware, it's a dating app used to find quote-unquote local hookups. Tinder records indicate that a profile was set up under the name of Andy and that a cell phone number linked to a fictitious individual by the name of Andrew Roberts using a email address of springfieldman9 at aol.com. This account was established on January 15, 2011 under the name of John Springfield with an address in Astoria, Queens. 
this account, this email account, was established using a different cell phone. This point, I think, is kind of cool because it shows how meticulously they went over this individual's information. Quote, Records obtained from Verizon show that defendant Howerman's cell phone was used on December 11, 2002 for a period of over three hours to access to fictitious Spring... Fieldman 9 AOL account. Similar records obtained from T-Mobile showed that burner cell phone number redacted was used on multiple dates, including November 8, 2002, to access this account. A review of call records for these two additional burner cell phones revealed that both cell phones were used extensively between 2021 and 2023 for prostitution-related contacts either with sex workers or massage parlors. In addition, cell site warrants for these burner cell phones revealed that just like the burner cell phones defendant Howerman used to contact the victims prior to their disappearances, these additional burner cell phones had frequent cell site activity in Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park. Specifically, the records revealed that both these burner cell phones consistently had activity on the cellular towers that provided coverage to defendant Howard Whitman's residence in Massapequa Park and his business in New York City. Legal process served up Google seeking records or accounts associated with the device identifiers of these additional burner cell phones revealed a connection to yet another burner or junk email account, namely thawk080672 at gmail.com. Hereafter, the thawk email account. Google Records further indicated that the thawk email account was subscribed in the fictitious name of Thomas Hawk. A search warrant revealed that the thawk email account associated with burner cell phone number redacted was used to conduct thousands of searches related to sex workers, sadistic torture-related pornography, and child pornography, including 1. Mistress Long Island, 2. Mature Escorts Manhattan, 3. Girl Begging for Rape Porn, 4. Teen Girl Begging for Rape Porn, 5. Pretty Girl with Bruised Face Porn, 6. Torture Redhead Porn, 7. 10-Year-Old Schoolgirl, 8. High and Tie Plump Pussy Lips Cut-Off Porn. 9. Skitty Redhead Tied-Up Porn. Short Fat Girl Tied-Up Porn. 11. Tied-Up and Raped Porn. 12. Asian Twink Tied-Up Porn. 13. Tied Slave Force-Fed Cock. 14. Cum Shot and Crying Porn. 15. Girl Hog Tied Torture Porn. 16. 10-Year-Old Blonde Hair Girl. 17. Chubby 10-year-old girl. 18. Black girl 10 years old. 19. Girl with face beaten up. 20. Chubby 10-year-old girl crying. 21. 13-year-old school girl. 22. Age 12 girl, child girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. 23. Blonde haired girl young depressed. 24. Teen girl oiled bodies. 25. Pre-teen girl with makeup. 26. Nude slave girls. 27. Old janitor's bang, gangbang little schoolgirl. 28. Crying girl painful anal. 29. Schoolgirl. 30. Crying teen porn. As you can see, this guy's a complete and utter scumbag. I apologize to anyone that heard that and 
was offended by it, but I am a completist, and I believe giving in all of the information, unless it involves actual images of a crime being committed against a child. I read that because I wanted you to know just exactly the type of individual the police are accusing this defendant of being. Further, police were able to find Google searches that this burner cell phone and burner email account had made in relation to the Long Island slayings. Here are a few of them. This comes directly from the affidavit. One, why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Two, why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Three, Long Island serial killer. Four, Long Island serial killer phone call. Five, Long Island serial killer update. Six, Long Island serial killer update 2022. Seven, FBI active serial killers. Eight, serial killers by state 2023. Nine, map of all known serial killers. Ten, unsolved serial killer cases. Eleven, America's five most notorious old cases. Twelve, eleven currently active serial killers. 13. Eight terrifying active serial killers we can't find. 14. John Bitroth. 15. Megan Waterman. 16. Melissa Barthelme. 17. Maureen Brainerd Barnes. 18. Redacted name of re relative of Melissa Barthelme. 19. Redacted name of relative of Mo Megan Waterman. 20. Cops launch Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation Task Force. 21. Mapping the Long Island murder victims. 22, Inside the Long Island Serial Killer in Gilgo Beach. 23, The Gilgo Beach Killer, Criminal Minds. 24, In Long Island Serial Killer Case Investigation, New Phone Technology may be key to break the case. Now, the defense could very easily, and probably will if this thing goes to trial, argue that the reason he looked into these cases was because it was a local news source and like so many he what became fascinated by it however the fact that they were able to link a burner email and cell phone to their client is going to be a difficult hence the reason why the defense will either attempt to get evidence thrown out or more likely than not, will attempt to have it suppressed as being irrelevant to the case. The T-Hawk account was also used to look for documentaries and podcasts about the crimes, as well as images of the victims and their immediate family, along with any information that could be found on the task force. Assuming that the defense is unable to get any of this thrown out or suppressed. They're going to try and show that, you know, this wasn't their client. However, images of the defendant were found inside of the email of this T-Hawk account. They also were able to get, they were also able to get images from a store when the defendant went inside of a store to purchase more minutes for this burner phone. They also discovered a further 
email account Hunter1903A3, which was used to send images of prostitutes from upstate New York between two of the other secret email accounts. This phone and account were created on February 14th, 2004, using one of the aliases he had previously used. The police were able further to tie all of the cell phones and email accounts to the defendant by use of an IP address. Many people don't know that no matter how many devices you have at a home, generally speaking, they all share the same IP address. It's very similar to a home address. So the defendant or the individual with these cell phones used these cell phones at his home address and police were able to find that that IP address was logged inside of the cell phones as well as the email accounts and that that same IP address was the one listed as belonging to his home. There was also DNA evidence found on the bodies. There were two female hairs found on the body of Megan Waterman, a female hair found on the head of Amber Costello, and a hair fragment found on Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Now, they were able to find that three of these hairs belong to a mitochondrial Hapalong group K1C2, and that none of the victims were the owner of these hairs. The police then were able to recover garbage from outside of the Howerman's home, and after using DNA swabs, it was found that these hairs matched the DNA taken from one of the bottles, which we have to presume is the wife's DNA. The defense may try and argue that, you know, maybe it was his wife who did these crimes. However, the evidence doesn't show that. shows she was out of the area during the time that these crimes were committed. But here's the clincher. A hair was found on Miss Waterman's body. And after getting their hands on a pizza box that Rex Howerman had been using, they were able to link this hair via DNA to Rex Howerman, which is what led to the police finally taking the step to arrest Howerman. Few quick facts about Howerman to wrap this up. He is known to have at least two children. He's been married at least twice, and he has owned his own business in Manhattan since around 1997. From what I could discern, it was actually at this business that he was arrested. Police are continuing to search warrants on both his home more likely than not all of his financial records, his business, as well as any other place where he may be hiding or holding evidence. And it's going to be interesting to see whether or not this case actually gets to court. 
I've talked with another number of people, and many agree that Howerman is either going to cop a plea deal once he sees the mountain of evidence against him, or else he may decide to remove himself from this world, thus denying the families of the victims the justice that they are seeking. But because this is a fluid case, I don't want to speculate too much on what may or may not happen. However, I will continue to provide updates on this case if anything of substance comes out.